Part eight of Confessions of Two Brothers. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Confessions of Two Brothers by John Cooper Powis and Llewellyn Powis. Confessions by John Cooper. Section eight. The reader will have recognized by this time what I am trying to do in this personal sketch, and he will not, I trust, be angry with me for omissions which were originally implied in the method I have adopted. What I want to do is to give a picture of a certain type of character thrown upon the world, and of its struggles to adapt itself to inevitable circumstances. The margin of possible readaption in everybody's life is necessarily small. The longer one lives, the smaller one sees it to be. But the value of such a sketch as this, apart from its psychological interest, lies in the warning it may give to other, younger temperaments of the same type to guard and protect themselves under similar difficulties. The important thing, it seems to me, is to recognize fully as quickly as possible both the limitation of one's own disposition and the limitations of one's circumstances, and to lose no time in adjusting one's self-assertion to these moulds. How many hours have I wasted in trying to be something else than what nature intended? How long it is before one really discovers what nature did intend? I was born for sensations rather than action. I was born to enjoy sensations to analyze sensations and turn sensations into verbal and literary rhetoric. A person whose philosophy of the world has been corrupted by his morality would at once rebel in angry disgust at such a destiny. He would force himself to engage in manual labor. He would force himself to undertake the support of some great social reformation. He would assume every practical responsibility he could lay hands on. He would regard his incompetent sensationalism with shame and aversion, and by drilling, by gymnastics, by methodical activity, and the avoidance of sensational lures, turn himself, as far as possible, into a healthy-minded, energetic, and useful citizen. I refuse to regard such drastic methods as right or wise. Is nature so poor, mother? Is life so meagre a theatre that there cannot be found scope and opportunity for so harmless an abnormality as mine? Do not suffer yourselves to be depressed or paralyzed or converted, dear companions in sensationalism, by the stupid public opinion. Nature, not society, is your parent and you may take my word for it, there are ways and means of drawing upon natural forces that will make you strong enough to fight society on quite equal terms. The revolt is much more extended than you suppose. You are not alone in Israel. You have only to focus your scattered energies, to concentrate your drifting emotions. The instinct of self-preservation in the life stream itself requires your self-assertion. Nature will never suffer the strenuous or the practical to work a final victory over you. But to return to my self-analysis, 
I am certainly, of all men, the most helpless and incompetent in dealing with what we call matter, with material obstacles, material complications, material embarrassments. In the presence of the simplest material difficulty, I am positively ashamed to give examples. I am struck helpless as an impaled snake. I wriggle, head and tail, and utter inarticulate expostulations. No one can believe the misery into which the most obvious practical necessities plunge me. My hands are made for nothing upon earth but explanatory gestures. They refuse to obey any practical command, and the rest of my body is as helpless as they are. I have not the mechanical skill necessary for the simplest undertaking. Little absurd physical imbroglios render me completely hors de combat. I can neither ride, nor climb, nor dance, nor shoot, nor fight, nor drive, nor whistle, nor hum a popular catch. I would sooner go without food for twenty-four hours than face a savage landlord or order a dinner at an improper hour from a sulky head waiter. To quarrel with an official or a policeman is an impossibility to me. To differ in opinion from a stern fellow traveller is a nervous effort quite beyond my reach. I cannot refrain from wondering what would be the effect upon me of a little wholesome military training. I suppose if I survived the experience, I should be a different person. But though I have no liking for myself, I do not want to be a different person. I want to remain myself, with certain obstacles and infirmities removed, and my own respect gained. Probably I shall end by perishing like Turgenev's oratorical Rudin, shot through the heart in an attempt to analyse his last revolutionary sensations. I am afraid I am appallingly well adapted for the hero of a sarcastic light comedy. I sometimes fancy I must present myself to my friends under the guise of an elongated penguin. If the reader recalls those queer polar amphibians with their incompetent flapping appendages and their eloquent gestures, I do not know how penguins make love, except from vague reminiscences of Anatole France's story. Moving pictures of polar latitude seem to omit such details. But I sometimes fear that in that final proof of practical heroism, I am as much of a fool as in the rest. I suppose it is by reason of this physiological clumsiness that so few female penguins of our race have ever regarded me with anything but distant interest. The youngest of young girls like their friends to be smart, well-dressed and enterprising. I have been very severely taken to task for an awkward blunderer, even in the art of innocent flirtation. Perhaps it is out of a kind of revenge for these rejections that my wayward fancy loves to imagine queer, impossible situations in which such exacting young persons are led to beg very pitifully for my satanic commiseration. I keep calling myself a sensationalist, but let it be clearly understood that I am the very opposite of a sybarite. My sensationalism is of an imaginative cast. It leads me constantly into absurd extremes of asceticism. I am naturally an ingrained ascetic, with lapses into luxuriousness. What is called comfort 
has very little claim upon me. Many of my most exquisite sensations demand discomfort as their appropriate accompaniment. I must, however, indicate that even in my avoidance of comfort, I am abnormally and unhealthily aware of the material aspects of things. I am superficial. The surface of existence constantly obsesses me. I cannot forget it in the stream of great emotions. I suppose the only occasion when I do forget this obtrusive matter and all its little exactions are when some wonderful line of poetry or some astoundingly imaginative picture lifts me out of myself. Sometimes, though less often, philosophical analysis has the same effect. In analysing things, I escape from them. In dissecting them, I rise above them. I would indeed recommend to everybody, who like myself suffers from the pinch of life's material engines, the wisdom of this procedure. Nothing in the world remains uninteresting when the analytical intelligence is brought to bear upon it. This is really what Spinoza means by the liberating power of the understanding. I suppose a not unimportant revelation of a person's life, and one not unilluminative as to his character, is the sort of advice he would give were he put upon his oath of seriousness by the presence of death or some tragic calamity to young people inclined to lend him their attention. One talks in ironic disguises to one's contemporaries and elders. One usually hates them so that one wants them to remain exactly as they are. But it is a different thing when it comes to youth. Oh, youth, youth, may my tongue wither in my mouth if I ever insult thy sweet docility by false conventional maxims or vain jocular bravado. Youth is the hope and salt and salvation of this muddy, brutal world. And those who refuse to take youth seriously, be they as clever as Plato or as subtle as Hegel, are surely deserving of unmitigated damnation. For myself, the one thing I fancy I have a genuine right to be proud of is the fact that when I have to deal with youth, I grow scrupulous, considerate, serious and grave. I do not say that I grow responsible. My very anxiety not to make a mistake renders me extraordinarily unwilling to assume responsibility. I am so afraid, too, of interfering. How many impertinent parents and other conceited elders take upon themselves to push young persons here and there, to plunge them into this profession or that profession, to mould and maul and mangle their tentative tender self-development. It is in this matter of the education of youth that I find myself differing from many of my free-thinking friends, whose views I otherwise endorse. They seem perfectly willing to thrust down the throats of these sensitive fledglings all their original theories and ideas. I cannot feel it in this way. In solitary conversation with any child who wants really to know what I think, I express myself as gravely, exactly, and minutely as I should do if I were holding a sort of judgment day dialogue with my own soul. But I never imply that my personal opinions carry any more weight than the child's own. I avoid the ex-cathedra manner. Indeed, I am at pains to make it clear to my young friend that I am myself 
only attempting to justify by reason and argument what remains at bottom a matter of personal temperament with this in view i do not shrink from presenting myself to him as a queer fellow or one who has his eccentricities beyond this i am inclined to put the child in the way of outward conformity with the customs of the country i let him see that i myself go my own way irrespective of these customs and then leave it to him to develop under the surface of their convenient cloak any individual rebellions he may be led to adopt out of the pressure of his personal peculiarities if the child is naturally extremely sensitive it is better that he should be impressed by the flexible easy outward conventions of immemorial usage than that this or the other individually thinking person should warp him with his private prejudices in all this i am largely influenced by my inherent scepticism and my invariable suspicion of the value of every kind of private judgment and personal conclusion including my own it is this sort of sceptical ironic acquiescence in time-worn usages that i should indicate to the child as the safest road and i would always suggest to him the advisability of suspending his judgment upon many problems until he is older i would gradually communicate to him in fact my own attitude towards these ancient conventions but i would present my personal ideas in so light a way that he would not be bound to take them any more seriously than those of the community nothing is more repulsive to me than the manner in which certain earnest-minded parents fill their infants heads with their own pompous heresies and make odious little conceited freethinkers of them the great art of successful education according to my view is to protect the delicate minds of children from the imposition of the self-willed private opinions of their elders and this is done most successfully by putting them under the exterior formalism of some ancient time-worn system especially when the healthy-minded paganism of the child is fortified by a little carefully instilled sceptical doubt children are much more subtle and intelligent than one supposes with the least encouragement they will quickly be found to steer clear of any premature committal of themselves to this or that profession or opinion or party they know as well as we do that they are feeling their way and they often quite consciously make use of the thousand and one distractions of childhood to protect themselves from our untimely meddling i remarked in connection with the cool manner in which we genteel classes sponge upon the wage earners that i was not enough of a saint to give back my inherited plunder to the armies of the homeless and unfed that is true but for all that i have a queer inexplicable penchant for a saint's life how lovely to possess nothing and have no ties how lovely to wander about from village to village living on bread and milk and working miracles one peculiarity usually noted in saints i already do possess i have a genius for making a fool of myself it is an interesting psychological phenomena this role of being a fool there is in it much more malice than is usually supposed one sometimes does it simply in order in a queer perverted way to be revenged on the proud well-constituted people one is forced to meet 
but i do it maliciously too i fear in my relations with my friends i exaggerate my eccentricities i parade my adversities i expose all my most secret and scandalous thoughts i love nothing better than to be the butt of my friends ethical and intellectual indignation i sometimes defeat my own ends however at this little game for though i begin doing it in order to lead the darlings of my soul into the sin of pride i not infrequently end by feeling really as if i were a kind of moral abortion and this feeling is less agreeable to me than might be supposed i referred just now to the sin of pride i wonder if i am proud or still worse conceited i think perhaps i am for when it comes to the point i get hardly any exhortation of feeling from the things i can do such things as talking analyzing criticizing interpreting and a great deal of exhortation from a vague belief in the possession of much higher powers powers to be displayed to the world some day but at present extremely deeply hidden is it not grotesque that i should still have the illusion it is not an illusion to me that i have the power to write really important and original poetry should i not have done so already if i were destined to do so probably i should but to the end of my life i shall in secret hug and cherish this pathetic conceit yes i shall hug and cherish it for let them say what they will there is a certain thrilling sense of magical power that sometimes sweeps over me as if from the shores of lost atlantis promising things beyond the vision of hope many people in england wonder at my love for america fools how shall i ever pay back the debt i owe to this dear mad chaotic scandalous country where the women know how to take care of themselves and the men know how to take care of the woman no one with a tendency to love the great driving fatalistic rush of simplified elements can help loving america little things little people little distinctions little niceties little gardens little houses and little scandal how they are all swept aside and reduced to nothing in the torrent of this huge grotesque outrageous avalanche of human lava things fall into their due proportion in america into their true place under the milky way culture falls into its place and the gentility of gentlemen and the traditions and reverences of the past how salutary how refreshing that immense nonchalant cynicism that huge disregard for ceremony that unrespect for persons for me who find in england so much that obtrudes that claims attention that demands meticulous handling what an escape to be swept along on this tremendous torrent where all separate things are bleached as it were into a common insignificance individual objects and persons those objects and persons that are so teasing and distracting in their emphatic colours grow beautifully and monotonously grey as the winds of the great plains blow over them people grow to resemble one another and acquire a touching and profound modesty a cosmic modesty like that of sand dunes or sea pebbles under the pressure of so vast a human tide i said a little above that i was no lover of humanity 
and had small understanding of those who were. This is true. I am afraid the power of love is deplorably small in me. It is obvious that, if this be so, I myself am the worst sufferer from it. How strange it all is. One is born with certain faculties and qualities, or one is not. One is blamed or praised accordingly. But how unfair! Who of the children of men chose the womb that bore him? Who the orbits and transits of the stars under which he first saw the light? But though not of amorous or loving temper, I am not always dull to the heart-breaking pathos of human life upon this earth. I think I feel at most this melting mood when, in a chance encounter on my journeys, the astounding gentleness and friendly consideration of some laborious child of toil hits me with a palpable hit of wonder. How can these victims of our social system remain so sweet-tempered, so courteous, so cordial? I know that all working people are not like that. I have met some as brutally, as boisterously arrogant as any bloated slave-driver. But that there should be any so urbane, so sensitive, so tactful. One is reconciled to the human race by such divine patience under such a lot. To turn once more to the general attempt I am making to get at the bottom of those ideas and sensations which reveal my identity, I should not be true to my analytical conscience if I did not recognize one curious form of doubt which seems habitually present. I refer to the doubt as to whether what we call our ideas are really as important and prominent as we claim. What I seem to notice is that people are driven steadily forward by their inherited disposition and their circumstances, while the ideas that they project are only, as it were, little moving shadows and mirrored reflections of the inevitable stream of their destiny. It is appalling the manner in which the mere outward conditions of our life mould, impress, and limit us. On the other hand, it is appalling how little the interchange of ideas and opinions affects our predestined, inherited temper. My life, when I really examine it, turns out to be a perpetual series of by-issues and interludes, under the surface of which my integral self waits and expects its free opportunity, waits and expects it, and will be found waiting and expecting it when my last hour strikes. The real primitive, drastic elements in the drama are only these two. The underlying pressure of one's dominant will to enjoy, fettered and limited by the jagged and rough-edged obstacles of outward circumstances and conditions. It is incredible the easy manner in which we conceal these facts, the hypocritical references and appeals we make to our moral sense and our philosophical ideas. The more what we esteem our virtue is subjected to analysis, the more it turns out to be nothing but a rather sordid compromise between the exigencies of our insatiable, our corrupt will, and the hard, sharp restraints of material conditions. It is just this that gives me a feeling of shameful treachery to the facts of the case, when I advocate in speaking and writing my epicurean cult of elaborate and refined sensationalism. It would give a still worse feeling of shame if I launched out, as some do, 
into bold idealistic appeals to the supremacy of the spirit in real life how far does my epicurean cult actually affect my conduct not in the slightest degree when circumstances throws me in the way of some object of attraction an exquisite field of flowers an indescribable woodland solitude an ancient city square or populous market-place a seashore crowded with tender children an enchanting group of fair youths or alluring maidens does my inner conscience repeat to itself some liturgical formula about our duty to make the most of every hour not in the least i just forget everything and drink fiercely desperately of the cup of delectable vision suppose on the other hand that some obtrusive diabolical necessity a lecture to be given an engagement to be fulfilled a business transaction to be got through an uncomfortable promise to be kept intervenes and summons me away it is to no virtuous ethical principle that i submit it is simply to the crude unlovely pressure of brute circumstance end of part eight